So we'll, we'll kind of go, go from the top. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll wing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will wing it. All right. And welcome to the Unions 21 podcast with me, Simon Tapper. And me, Betty Wright. And you join us this week from various places across the UK as we travel back from our, our commitments this week. Uh, Becky, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. You can hear me. Listeners, can you hear us? And what a week it's been, really, I suppose. Uh, the Shadow Chancellor's contribution to the Labour Party conference really did put a stake in the ground. Whatever your party or political affiliations, uh, I don't think there can be any gain saying that me like uh, the gauntlet was thrown ahead of Conservative um, Party Conference next week. It'll be interesting to see how the Tories respond to it. I thought really interesting that John McDonald started with straight away off the bat employment rights from day one and working on board. That was like the off. You know, we haven't heard I mean we had because obviously loads of people we know have been talking about it but I mean that we haven't really heard that from the get-go from a shadow chancellor. So that was quite interesting. Yes, Becky, I'd agree with that. And I thought the response from the CBI, from uh, Carolyn Fairburn, was uh, was almost as interesting in, in itself. It was almost a kind of hysterical denunciation of this as something that would drive down investment and drive down uh, productivity. I mean, you, I, you could tell the anxiety by the level of the response and also the inaccuracy of the response. I mean, come on, hey, CBI, haven't you noticed? Productivity is way stuck down in the doldrums and isn't moving at all despite a really tight labour market. I, when she said, when Caroline Fairburn said that, I was like, mm, maybe you should talk to Germany because they seem to have a higher productivity and they have workers on board. And, I, I mean, I thought that workers on, and this will kind of go into the conversation that I had later on in today in the, in this episode about collective voice. I think workers on board is something that TC has been pushing for for a long time, and I think it completely makes sense. But it's only one part of the collective voice. Look, I mean, you've got to take a holistic view, I think, haven't you? Uh, these are two significant pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, the picture of which doesn't become clear until all the pieces are in place. But that doesn't mean to say that this isn't a serious contribution, uh, asking serious questions about why we have such stubbornly low productivity in an era of tightening labour markets. And it's got to be welcomed. It's got to be welcomed. And that, I suppose, links us on to the Unions 21 Commission for Collective Voice, which is a major initiative that's now really building up speed, isn't it? So, uh, so for listeners, this is a, an 18-month project that we launched in July, but properly kind of kicked off uh, a couple of weeks ago in September. And the whole point of the commission is to explore what collective voice looks like in the 21st century. We talk about collective bargaining, we talk about union recognition, and yet actually, what does that mean? What does that mean, kind of, uh, to people who aren't trade union members or who aren't kind of trade union activists, 
what does it actually mean in terms of the shapes in the systems that we need to have to reflect the 21st century work environment? It is potentially about how uh, business and workers work together to raise productivity and growth and output and all of that kind of jazz. But it's also about how you need to engage with workforces to do um, to kind of manifest their their views. So the commission isn't just about kind of union models and how we work. Although I suspect that will touch into it, about how we talk about collective voice, collective bargaining, the way that everybody understands. But it will also be about trying to reimagine what collective bargaining kind of looks like and there are of course the discussions around sectoral bargaining and also what do you do when the majority of people work in a small medium-sized enterprise and within that they work in micro business and there's an awful lot of things to be unpacked around that one what does collective voice look like in regions in terms of productivity and regional economic growth and have businesses kind of um, operate with each other. I, I think it's just an awful lot for us to unpack. It sounds quite um, ambitious, but I think that we need to be ambitious as a movement right now. We need to be moving forward and thinking about what works, why it works, and what we can how we can the 21st century. So, listeners, as Becky has said, we want your views, whether you're an academic, whether you're a trade union rep, whatever level you're a rep at in, in your union, whether you're a member, whether uh, you're a member and you've never done anything active before in your in your union. We want your views. We want your stories. And if you visit www.unions21.org.uk forward slash work for us, that's all one word, work for us, you can find details of how you can make your submissions, make your views known and contribute to the work of the Commission for Collective Voice. And this is something that we'll be returning to in a bit more detail in future episodes of the podcast. You can also engage via our Twitter handle, which is at work underscore for underscore us. And also use the hashtag work for us. Well, turning now to our to our special guest, Chris Wright, uh, who is from the University of Sydney, who gives us a view on what seem to be common problems that the Australian labour movement faces in terms of density, enforcement of low-pay regulations and stuff like that. But actually, because it's geographically, politically so very different, uh, it gives a really different slant. So I'm, I'm sitting here in the uh, glorious Unions 21 offices with um, a former ex-colleague of mine, Chris Wright, no relation, which I think we spent quite a lot of time explaining to people when we shared the office. This is the right office, quite literally, but unrelated in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Chris is a, um, a lecturer in industrial relations. You can tell by his accent that he's not from these parts, but is in fact a uh, from down under. Chris, can you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing at the moment and how did you fall into this glamorous world of industrial relations? Well, thanks for having me, Becky. Um, and uh, yeah, great to see you again after all this time. But yeah, so the year after I finished school, I kind of been at school for... 13 years, I didn't really know anything else. And I thought, before I go to university, I want to kind of see what the real world is like. And I've actually worked, for want of a better term, um, shit jobs for a year, uh, 
doing um, administration and then cold call sales for a, a local newspaper and then working, uh, doing um, clerical stuff for some lawyers. It was the work that one gets when you don't really have a tertiary qualification and, um, and it was, you know, it was grunt work and it was pretty boring and, and I guess for the first time made me conscious of, you know, the reality of, of work for most people um, and also the importance of protections to ensure that people had some agency uh, in their in what they did and then so I, after that I went to university at Sydney University where I now work uh, and um, I thought I'm going to do a, a degree in politics and history but I need to fill in I had to fill in a few other subjects Older and, kind yeah, of subjects. yeah yeah I ran out a few subjects in for the first year and picked this one called industrial relations because I thought oh it's about work and that sounds interesting, and um, but I thought, okay, I'll do it and then dispense with it. And then the first lecture was by a guy called Braden Ellum about the origins of Australia's industrial relations system and what that meant and about how that basically meant uh, that delivered people justice uh, and dignity in their work and was a way and, a, um, and how important industrial relations was as a linchpin of um, our economy and our society. In Australia and elsewhere, and that um, that basically, I'd never, I've never looked back, <laughs> and um, yeah, and actually now, now I'm working with Braden, and it's kind of incredibly cool to have as one of my colleagues the person who really inspired me to get into this area in the first place. I love that story because I think because I had a very similar experience of going into the world of work and questioning why things were happening and not liking kind of what I'd seen and not having a union background kind of going like, well, what, what, how do we kind of do this? And having done labor history for GCSE, that was how radical my, wow. yeah, kind of was like, oh yeah, these used to be these things called unions. And what I love about it is I think this really shows the uh, relationship we had when we were in our office together, which is you really got kind of switched on and went the, the academic thoughtful route I I went through the really angry grassroots <laughs> go into like I was like ah, I just want to get in there and kind of do it and what's quite nice about that is that I think both paths are completely useful and necessary absolutely yeah completely and from that really good discussions come along like Chris I don't understand this explain it to me or that's not going to work in the real world and then um, Becky, why doesn't this idea get implemented? Because yeah. it just won't wash. <laughs> How can you build a campaign around that? Because no, nobody cares. <laughs> Move on to the next one. So I think, and this is where I really love talking to academics because I think that you guys come at it with a different mindset, and from that, sort of, quite a lot of um, uh, ideas can sort of stem. Abstract, divorce from reality, kind of context. <laughs> You might say that, I couldn't possibly comment. I mean, you, when we first met, you were writing a piece for the TUC on collective bargaining. And we did a piece of work on the roadmap to renewal for unions and kind of tried, and we were obviously now we're working on our commission for collective bargaining. And one of the first things I did was go back to read that document. And it, it felt really, still really fresh to me, but, when I look back and thought, uh, after, how long? After, after you blew the dust off the cover. <laughs> after I hunted around for my copy, which of course I still keep, uh, yeah. Like, I, 
I looked at it, I thought, oh, this sounds really fresh, there's some really good stuff in here. And then I remembered how long ago it was when you wrote that. And then I just thought, my God, is this a good thing that those, some of the stuff that you you did there is still relevant? Uh, or is it just that we haven't moved on? So I just thought it'd be quite interesting for you, for you to talk to people about kind of what that paper was and, and what you think is still quite useful and interesting from it. Yeah, I mean, that was a like was such a, a joy to work on that project. It was um, a real privilege to have the opportunity. Uh, so the, the, the TUC basically got a, a grant from the ESRC to do this project called Unions, Employment Relations and Collective Bargaining. And the brief was basically, can you come up with some ways that um, unions can extend collective protections you know, to the labour market, given what was what, what's happening, you know, the, the hollowing out of the labour market, the decline of collective bargaining coverage and new membership um, and um, some of the problems that's creating. So the two uh, things I think that the project or the report tried to do was put collective bar- the importance of the need for collective bargaining in, in kind of a, in a context of, um, okay, this is what's happened to it. You know, it's been something that came under attack in the 80s under the Tories and then was never, never re-embraced under New Labour. Uh, so there's that kind of political reality of, of what, what, what happened to it. Um, but also that you could say with a high degree of confidence that it caused a lot of the problems in the UK's labour market and economy more broadly in terms of inequality and um, in terms of you know um, removing that beneficial constraint on businesses um, uh, that um, unions forcing businesses to behave in a way that's responsible. That was kind of one side of it, and then there was the kind of the more probably I guess useful side of it was trying to identify some kind of green shoots, particularly around where unions were bargaining beyond the employee-employer in single enterprise mm. arrangement. So, you know, it was the, the idea behind that was we've often thought about collective bargaining in, well, in two ways, in terms of bargaining between unions representing a group of workers at, at the enterprise and, and a single employer, so single employer enterprise bargaining. And then also the, which I guess is the, was the model under, under Blair. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, and then the industry-wide bargaining that had existed pre-Thatcher. Pre- and to say, well, for, for various reasons, it's hard to really, uh, the, the, the individual enterprise bargaining isn't really working. You know, it's, it was diminishing in value for unions uh, in, in, union, in industries where there was, uh, you know, where there wasn't much collective bargaining. It was incredibly difficult for unions yeah. to, to get up an agreement. And industry-wide bargaining was kind of not, not something that was probably going to come back easily, given that, uh, you know, that employers have basically walked away from it. So I was looking at kind of supply chains, uh, looking at where unions have been able to work with multiple employers, with kind of um, uh, with companies at the top of supply chains, and the cases were around, you know, where they'd worked with supermarkets to get some better standards around agency workers mm. in uh, meat processing, um, uh, in construction, where they'd worked with project managers, um, you know, the big um, construction companies, to try to extend predictions down to kind of small and medium-sized um, contractors uh, where, uh, you know, where the big problems are more likely to, to occur, uh, working with um, government ministries like uh, government departments uh, to try to extend protection, to get agreements with them to extend protections to contractors. I mean, doing the research on that was really a lot of fun and working with activists here and learning from them. But I think that um, you know that some of those um, cases perhaps have some relevance to the new ways that precarious work has emerged in the period since around mm. work and, and the like. So, and then you sort of you, you left us, 
you know, quite literally you left the office, but also you left the country to return to the the sunny shores of Australia. What what have you been kind of working on sort of since then? I mean, is it still stuff to do around collective bargaining? Is it kind of moved in? I know you've done some stuff around employers and employer engagement as well. And kind of what what have you kind of been working on? And kind of also within that, having been in the UK and having obviously going back to Australia, are there things that is happen- that is happening in Australia that we should kind of be kind of attuned to and kind of looking at? And also there's some things that we're doing here that you think the Australian kind of labour market in general should be thinking about. about. Um, That's a really sure. long question. So in terms of the, no, <laughs> not at all. In terms of the first one, the like um, what have I been doing since? Um, so yeah, now I'm at Sydney University. So I've had a long-standing interest around immigration. Um, I did my PhD around I see the intersection between immigration, politics and industrial relations. Um, so that's kind of been something I've, I've I still do. Um, I've also been doing stuff around labour standards and, and unions as well. And I guess the way that's sort of intersected in in the last couple of years has been around um, uh, around enforcement. So, you know, there's kind of a, a huge problem of um, ensuring that, you know, minimum wages are enforced, particularly around, among kind of groups of workers who are um, prone to vulnerability more than, other groups of workers are so yeah, yeah. You know, so for example, English speaking type work, workers, yeah sure yeah, yeah. yeah and also um you know, workers uh on you know, with temporary migration status you know whose yeah. right to be in a particular country might be contingent upon maintaining their their, their relationship with their sponsoring employer yeah yeah uh, or who need some sort of certification from an employer to to be able to live in the country. So that, that uh, it's something that's a particular issue in Australia at the moment and has been for the last few years. And it's a big problem in a lot of other countries as well. I mean, I saw, I saw a video that you'd done where they were talking about something like, was it one in two Australians are either immigrants in the workforce or immigrants or have a migrant... Did I get that wrong? Uh, so uh, what you one in every two either are in a market themselves or are the, yeah. are the child of a migrant. Yeah, that's an amazing statistic. Yeah. So, I mean, Australia has this kind of legacy of uh, being a, a nation of immigrants, but also, I guess, a, a workforce of immigrants. Yeah. And, um, you know, other, for many years, it avoided the problems of uh, that several other countries had had around exploitation of, of migrant workers, partly, well, f- for two reasons. It's because... Um, Traditionally, Australia, like like Canada, um, bought and like the US as well, for, for a period, brought people in almost exclusively on a permanent basis. So you came in, and then you had the same rights as citizens. So there wasn't this sort of situation you had, like you know, in the post-war period. In and I'm, I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but you know, like you know, like, <laughs> welcome, welcome to our office chats, everyone. <laughs> Five hours later, we're still here. We haven't sorted out the issue, but we had a really good chat. Yeah, but, you know, like the yeah, post-war yeah. continental European problem, like the Gustarbeiter yeah, guest yeah. worker problem in Germany. Problem in the sense of you know, you had kind of a second segment. second tier of citizenship. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was, a, and then, but the other ingredient to kind of get back on track was having mm-hmm. unions playing a really strong role in enforcing standards. So, you yeah. know, this is, uh, you know, back in the days in Australia where you had, you know, 50 to 60, 60% union membership, people who were coming out to Australia after the Second Second World War and for the, decade, the many decades that followed up until the 90s were coming out. And, you know, that they were they were embraced within the union movement too. And, um, and, the, and the unions were, so they were signing up to, as members, but they were also 
but unions played a really important role in ensuring that that the standards were applied equally. Yeah. That that um, and they're enforced equally. So, and then that's all kind of gone. That's been actively stripped away by. Initially, by similar story to here, I guess you know. Initially, by a conservative government going in and basically trying to destroy the framework of the industrial relations system, and also destroying the the success the framework of a successful model of permanent migration and replacing it with a temporary migration model that's suited to meet the the need the short term needs of employers. And now you had this big big problem where people um, you know that um, there's kind of rampant exploitation in low in low wage non unionised industries. It's a it's a it's a kind of a, a massive problem for the labour market and for and for work and for for workers' rights. So um, so that's kind of what I've been doing. But then I've also been doing stuff around more stuff around supply chains, more stuff yeah. around unions um, uh, as well. So I mean, we as you know, because we've been chatting about it before we started recording. Unions Twenty One are now working on a big major commission on the kind of what is collective voice in the 21st century is there is there something that you think australia is doing quite well at around collective bargaining something that like uk unions and the kind of uk public policy world should take note of well or is that just a no and we're just all in it well we're all in it together and a kind of going to hell in a handcart no, I think I mean like the, if you look at the numbers, you know, union membership in Australia is lower than it is in the UK, so it's down to fifteen percent density there, and yeah, even much lower than that in the private sector. So, you know, there's a lot that I think Australian unions can learn from UK unions in terms of maintaining resilience in uh, in the existing areas of strength. You know, um, but in terms of what things that are, are done in Australia that could be learned from here, so there's a couple of things. So. We our can have um, for the form of of um, temporary or, or zero hours type contracts in Australia is called we call them casual contracts. You know where people basically don't have any guaranteed right to anything. You know um, the employment's completely contingent. And when this was introduced quite a long time ago, back in the nine, early nineteen eighties, it was accompanied by a loading or a penalty of of between fifteen and twenty five percent, which meant that you know employers had to pay a premium if they wanted to hire somebody on a casual contract. And that was a, well, they had to pay them a premium in terms of the wages they received. That that was partly to compensate for the, that, that work and not receiving um, uh, you know, leave, the statutory protections and entitlements basically that permanent workers would get. And also stuff to do maybe with when they're told when they can work, you know, like you've got to work tomorrow, you've got to work today. Some recognition of the fact that that is quite unsettling and you can't plan your life really so here's a kind of a, a, a charge on top of that exactly yeah so i mean i think that's uh that hasn't really deterred employers from engaging workers on casual contracts you know because the rates of people on around 25 percent of the workforce is a, is a casual 20 25 percent actually yeah i think it's about 27 percent now so it's kind of it's been it's always been around that figure but it does mean at least there's some there's some deterrent effect for employers and there's some compensation for employees so you know, looking at the the IPPR report that came out, what was one of the things it recommended was that people on zero hours contracts should receive a, a a loading or a penalty. Yeah, yeah. And so there should be some kind of recognition in the amount that you get paid. And I think that's a great idea. I mean, like you know, we we all think these are pretty horrible contracts, but they're a kind of a reality. Mm. It's going to be pretty hard to outlaw them, but if they're going to exist, then make them 
less attractive for employers, yeah, yeah. make them compensate like compensatory for employees. So that's one thing. So an, an, another another thing is, so in terms of collective bargaining, I mean, we, we have kind of similar problems with enterprise bargaining, our form, our enterprise model of collective bargaining yeah. that's that's kind of emerged over the past 20, 25 years or so in Australia in that, you know, the rates of coverage are declining slowly but surely. But this has always coexisted with the, with the award system, which means mm-hmm. that basically instead of having a single national minimum wage, that there's a minimum wage for every occupation in every in every industry. So there's 122 awards across the labour market. Th- these have always existed. They're not as effective as they used to be. They used to be much more comprehensive. Yeah. Um, and that also, once upon a time, the collective bargaining was the award system, and then and then that kind of changed where you had this introduction of a enterprise model of collective bargaining mm-hmm. that sits, sits kind of on top of the awards. But I think that's a, there's, I mean, they're not a perfect system, but it does mean that you, that, that, um, that workers in, in, in any given occupation or industry have wages that are determined based on their skill, irrespective of the bargaining power that might exist in their workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and so the, it, it kind of works in many respects, like the wages council model. Yeah. used to in the UK and um, yeah, I noticed in the last couple of days Tony Dundon from Manchester University has been saying we should reintroduce a wages council model I think it's a really good idea you know it's it's a hark back to the past but it, it does mean that instead of having a single minimum wage you've got minimum wages across the labour market and you know there's an argument that that might kind of it could potentially neuter unions, but I don't think it would because the way that that could exist or the way that did exist in the past is that you basically it was jointly determined between unions and employers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as long as you gave unions some capacity to, you know, utilise industrial strength as part of that process, I think it can be a really effective mechanism of protecting and adequately compensating workers in a much more effective way than it currently exists under the minimum wage system but also providing unions a role, in a central role yeah, in that yeah. process. We've, we've st- I think we've still got to get our heads around the lack of employer engagement and the lack of employer organisations yeah. when we're thinking about wage councils. So th- that's always the way I've been thinking about it, is that they sound really good, but if we don't have the people on the other side of the table who are willing to sign up to the awards and enforce, be with us to enforce the awards, Absolutely. we're completely scuppered and we still haven't yet solved the the crisis of no employer organisations. And is it our, even our job to solve that crisis? No, I mean that's the thing. It's not really, is it? I mean, but... yeah, welcome to welcome to our discussions and our rabbit hole. <laughs> but it's, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, we could part that conversation for maybe a different time. But it does make me think we can't solve our crisis sometimes without solving somebody else's crisis. Well, I assume that I guess the couple of remaining industries where there is some sort of collective employer organisation, like um, so in the engineering and construction industry, you know, had one of the long-standing, pretty effective. Um, collective agreements, industry-wide agreements. And uh, I remember from my discussions with the ECIA, I think is it, the rationale for, for them was, well, it provides stability, you know, that, mm. that having a collective agreement, uh, having enforcement of the agreement by the employer association is really important because the industry really depends upon industrial peace and stability. Now, that kind of implies on the other side that of the, the problem they're trying to solve is the problem of union militancy. Mm. Uh, which you know is a problem of labour markets where you've got very high levels of very active union mem- members and membership, 
and that doesn't unfortunately characterise much of the UK labour market today. So how, how, how do you how do you get employees to the table? I think probably in the first instance it's good old-fashioned... Good old-fashioned organising. collective yeah. action. Um, I know that it's not a popular campaign to discuss in some circles of the union movement here, but the, the living wage campaign, the way that, um, that, that that was kind of rolled out initially in saying cleaning um you know and you know you know you know it was yeah. pretty pretty in- instrumental in in this as well was getting employees to the table through you know by by organizing and through collective action now yeah. it, and, and one of the things i think is really important to think about with the living wage for unions is that that campaign and that work was born from unions didn't kind of come out of nothing it's a historical campaign as well but what it's been able to do is kind of capture a zeitgeist and become part of a culture. Mm. So organisations are very happy to sign up to it because it makes them look like a good employer. Yeah, absolutely. And they weren't initially. And you know, yeah. there was a lot of resistance initially to that campaign. But there's been some kind of culture change, absolutely. I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. enough that the Tories start using it as a as a term. Yeah. You know, it's uh, not. You're bastardising the term. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but still, goes to show the power of the idea and the longevity of the de- idea and how it kind of continues. Um, just just thinking, we've asked all of our academics this question, Chris, but who, do you, who excites you? Who do you like to read? And who do you think we should be kind of keeping a bit of an eye out as a Unions 21 audience? I'm going to mention three sets of authors, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Okay, just because while we're on the topic of employer organisations, actually kind of uh, Ed Heary with some yeah. colleagues at Cardiff University, yeah, yeah. Marco Hautmeier and Leon Guberman and a yeah. few others, yeah, yeah. have been doing some really interesting work, I think, recently around new forms of employer organisation. Really fascinating piece I read by Leon the other day. So uh, looking at, and it's kind of taking on, looking at okay, the, what's happened to the decline of traditional forms of employer organisation and why it's kind of analogous to the decline of unions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually more dramatic, really. I mean, like, it's kind of, you know, the, whereas you know, unions have been able to maintain a, a, you know, a foothold in a quarter of the labour market. Yeah. Employer organisations have interesting and, and, um, and I think important research, I think, for, you know, for... For that question of you know for unions, how do you get employers to the table? How do you how do you start to perhaps appeal to their their interests um, when thinking about organising and bargaining? Um, and so the second one is um, Tom Coken, who's a you know, very well known, long standing um, American academic at MIT. And the reason I mention him is because you know uh, he about two weeks ago gave the Francis Perkins Memorial Lecture, um, named after the first female cabinet secretary in the US, one of the first labor secretaries as well, um, and about, um, you know, her policy initiatives were kind of central to the New Deal. She was basically going around for several years trying to find some of the um, local innovations that were being developed by unions and also local local policymakers at the, the state and municipal level in the US and using those ideas as the basis for what became the New Deal. Um, and I think that's, really, that's where we're at at the moment, you know, that we're back, we've got to reinvent the wheel a little bit in terms of, you know, that workforces around the world have been de-unionised, but we're seeing also new forms of collective organisation through unions, through maybe other forms, through a hybrid emerging, new forms of protection emerging. 
and um, I guess when we're looking thinking about what what does what an effective system of employment regulation look like for the 21st century that in, encompasses the problems around and the challenges of gig work around you know um, precarious contracts around precarious groups of workers around the the, the footless nature of capital um, then then we've got to try to source, do, do what Francis Perkins did and what Tom Coken has drawn attention to recently in his writings and in his Francis Perkins lecture, which is written up in the Boston Review. That's uh, that's the, um, is to kind of, that's a, that's a, wor- that's a worthy challenge. And the, and the final set, sorry, I'm, I'm being very long-winded, political scientists writing about labour and around work issues. And so there's been some really good, um, there's been two great books that have come out in the last few years, one by... Chris Howell and Lucio Beccaro looking at basically the neoliberalisation of um, labour markets and industrial relation systems everywhere, saying that, okay, we com- we often think that the European model still holds to some degree and, and they say, well, that's not really the case. So it kind of, kind of pours a bucket of cold water on, on you know, what's Depressed going on. Depresses us all. A bit, a bit, it is a pretty depressing book, but it's a brilliant book in terms of um, looking at the shift to policies that, are designed to enhance employer prerogative and managerial power. Um, but, the, um, and then I mentioned it alongside another book that came out a little bit before theirs by Kathleen Thielen called Varieties of Liberalisation, which more or less accepts the same premise, but says, well, yeah, you are seeing a, a, a liberalisation of industrialization systems everywhere, but this isn't. This is manifesting in really interesting ways. That the Danish model of liberalization mm. is not the U.S. model. It's not yeah, the British yeah. model, uh, and it it's, and it's evolved uh, in ways that have benefited employers, sure, but also have um, helped to um, find new and creative ways of protecting employees. Uh, you know, for example, th- through the flex security system, which is often disparaged because of the license it gives employers to hire and fire, but it yeah. actually is a really innovative model of vocational training and reskilling mm. and and compensation when people are inactive and, uh, but the the system of training that underpins that is really really good from what I understand of it and I think is especially important in the in the age of the platform economy where we're all going to be you know <laughs> Yeah. displaced displaced and, <laughs> easily yeah. displaced and how we kind of do that well that's really fascinating Chris I mean thank you for I mean, you obviously didn't fly over just to see us, but it was lovely that we could find well, some time. You're the first item on my uh, yeah, my yeah. Research, I was we were the agenda. first item, yeah, on the Drew agenda. Um, and I think that, that that those books and those readings that you've pointed out sound really fascinating. And I think that a lot of our listeners will probably go out and um, have a little scour. I mean, it's, they probably will. Maybe I can tweet the links or send. Yeah, the yeah. Or send us the links, and you go up, come to the website, and you can find it. And also, we've got some. We've got a paper of Chris's up on the website which he wrote with um, a colleague of his around the impacts of uh, Brexit and Labour standards, wasn't it? It's was really interesting. Very Go down and, and download it and have a, a read. Um, but thank you very much for your time. Thank Chris, you. And it's hopefully been... see you soon. <laughs> Likewise, absolutely. Well, listeners, I do hope you enjoyed that kind of canter through the Australian landscape. So it was kind of um, really what my working life was like for six months, where we would have these kind of really big esoteric ideas, and Chris would come and say, what about that? And I'd be like, nah, nah, how would you do that on the ground? You'd have to talk to people, Chris. And there are a number of things that uh, Chris picks out there that we'll be following up ourselves in future episodes, particularly uh, his discussion uh, and analysis of the Australian Fair Work Commission, sort of their low-pay commission, as it were, and we'll be recording a podcast 
uh, with the UK's low pay commissioners who look after the interests of workers, which includes me, but more importantly, Kay Carberry and Kate Bell from the TUC. Uh, and that will be coming your way uh, at the beginning of November, we hope. And if you want to follow up any of the academic references that Chris cited towards the end of his discussion with Becky, you can find all the links on our website, www.unions21.org.uk forward slash podcasts. And you can also find them on the blog section of the website uh, in the post that relates to this very podcast. Well, I think that just about brings us to uh, a, a close, listeners. Thank you, as ever, for your company during this episode. We've really enjoyed having you. We also very much uh, are interested in what you think, uh, and what you like, what you don't like, what you think we should cover, what you think we shouldn't cover. You can tell us what you think and join the discussion at info at unions21.org.uk. You can also rate us, if you can, please, on the podcasting platform of your choice. It really does make a difference in terms of influencing those algorithms that in turn affect just how widely the trade union voice can be heard out in podcasting listener land. Until the next episode of the Union's Trade Run podcast, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.